So, we have chapters 1 through 17. 1 through 17 was explaining how the verse, um, rather, this thing is uh, very near, very accessible to you um, in your mouth and in your heart to do it. How it's correct, how it's accessible in one's heart, meaning how it is feasible for a person to meet their obligations to Hashem that take place in the heart, i.e. that one serves Hashem with the requisite love and fear. And the basic idea was that because we have a godly soul which is capable of genuinely fathoming God's greatness, and that godly soul, as a result, produces emotion, and the only emotions that we are expected and guaranteed to be able to achieve are ones that motivate our action. Um, and even if they're not felt very visceral, as long as they're genuinely motivating the action, that is fulfillment of the verse. So through um, cultivating that, that awareness and understanding, we bring ourselves to that feeling. Okay. Then the chapters 25 through, no, sorry, 18 through 25 was addressing that the verse section is karav ma'id, exceptionally, extremely, very close. And because this approach, the, um, the first approach, depends on one having the ability to fathom Hashem's greatness, something that is not readily available to everybody, the altar takes another approach that our godly soul bequeaths us an innate love of Hashem, um, and that by becoming aware that that love exists and the nature of that love and its relationship with Torah mitzvahs, that can provide us with the motivation to do the mitzvahs for the right reasons, and that's the idea of the hidden love. Okay? Sometimes the first 17 chapters are called the long way, and then the next chapter is called the short way, simply because one is longer and one is shorter. Um, neither of them is really that short. They, they both entail a lot. Now, chapter 26, chapters 26 through, 20, through 34, with the exception of chapter 32, focus on simcha, on joy. Okay. Um, there are two chapters in Tanya that start with the word baram, which means however. However, it's a qualifying word, meaning that everything up till now is true with qualification. Okay. And the basic idea, and this is how chapter 26 starts, is that whichever approach one is going to take, either the approach from 1 through 17, so-called long way, greatness of, contemplating the greatness of Hashem produce the emotions, or um, the so-called shorter way, 18 through 25, tapping into the innate hidden love we have for Hashem, that is going to depend on having simcha. And the altar used the following analogy, that if you have two people engaged in physical combat, um, if one of them is stronger but is more sluggish, and the other one is, has greater alacrity, greater zrizos, the one with greater alacrity will win. So too, um, if you don't have the zrizos, the alacrity, um, you will not be able to overcome the animal soul and thus achieving the, the state of serving Hashem with the love and fear, at least to the status of a Bainini, which is said is at least the minimum goal, won't be able to be achieved. Okay? So the idea here is, is that joy is necessary for its effect in producing alacrity. You know, this, is to be under, this is important that we understand that other places in Chassidus it speaks about joy and um, its significance in other respects and for other reasons. But in the context of Tanya, the reason why joy is important is because joy produces this thing called alacrity or zrizus. Okay. What is zrizus and then what is joy? Um, zrizus is the ability 
to um, move quickly. Um, now there's a physical kind of zrizos where you can physically move quickly, right? There's also kind of a mental zrizos. So a very simple example is, we all know that when you finish a task, and then you have to move on to the next task, does that happen so easily? You just finish and then move on to the next thing? It's often quite difficult, right? Um, if you were, had something, you were planning on doing something a certain way, and then all of a sudden the facts change, and no one can do it the way you, the way you wanted, um, is it so easy to just adapt and adjust and approach things differently? Or that, that, that there's this kind of lag, there's this kind of slowdown that occurs, you move from thing to thing, when things don't go the way you expect. Okay? So there needs to be this kind of um, energeticness and flexibility that allows one to move quickly and deal with the challenges and difficulties as they occur. And if a person isn't in that state, they will not be able to um, overcome the animal soul. And so all of the methods and all of the ideas that were discussed in the first 25 chapters of Tanya will just be relegated to the realm of theory. They're not, they're not implementable. Zerizus, this quality of Zerizus, is a byproduct from being in a state called Simcha. Simcha is, is joy. And Simcha basically is um, where a person has a kind of positive feeling towards life, towards what's going on, a kind of energized optimism. I want to be very clear. Simcha is not really the result of good things happening to you. Okay? Um, the easiest way to explain this is that children have a natural simcha. Um, unless they're tired or hungry or something like this. This kid wakes up in the morning and um, like the fact that you know, there's, a, there's a day to be lived is something that's exciting. Right? Something looking forward to not for any particular reason, right? There's an energy of positivity towards living life, okay? That state of simcha can be explosive, like in celebration. It can be channeled, which is more like what the Alter is focusing on. But that positive, optimistic, energized feeling has to be there to generate this resource so that all of what was discussed in the first 25 chapters of Tanya is feasible. So that's how he starts off chapter 26. Okay. Now, Therefore, from the Alter Rebbe's perspective, there is no place for the opposite um, or for, for anything that contradicts this simcha. And what contradicts simcha, he describes as two things. One is atzvos, sadness, slash daigo, concern. So those are grouped together, sadness and concern. And the other one is called timtum halev, the heart being closed off. Timtum Halev, the heart is closed off. Now, the Alderabist puts his focus first on um, the Atzvos, the sadness, then he's going to deal with the Timtum Halev and then come back to the sadness. Okay? So, again, the basic thesis is that one needs to have this resist, the alacrity that, that is a byproduct of having simcha, having that kind of positive, energized, optimistic state of mind. And that means one has to free themselves of atzvos and daigo, sadness and concern on the one hand, and timtum of the heart being closed off on the other hand. Now, before he addresses how to free oneself of atzvos, of sadness, the Altarba discusses um, 
whether or not sadness has any positive role to play. And he bases himself on the verse, Bechol that in every sadness there is something to be gained, there's an advantage. Um, and his argument is, is that the fact that there's something to be gained from the sadness indication that sadness itself is really undesirable. Right? It might be a critical step towards achieving something else, but it itself is not desirable. In fact, the desirable thing that can be achieved from sadness is a greater joy. That what he calls true sadness, meaning sadness that is legitimate, sadness that has a true, proper justification, a true justification, can lead to a deeper kind of simcha, deeper kind of joy, or does lead to a deeper type of joy than without it. But, which is a topic he's going to revisit later, but in principle, a state of sadness is not conducive to serving Hashem. And so therefore, one needs to take responsibility to free themselves of sadness so that they can always be in a state of joy. Okay. Now, that's the first half of chapter 26. To make this a little bit simpler, what I'm going to do um, is I'm going to preface some things that the Alter Rebbe takes for granted. Um, the Alter Rebbe takes for granted that all sadness comes because of a misunderstanding. All sadness comes from understanding. And so if the sadness is inappropriate, it's coming from a misunderstanding. Okay. In other words, s- sadness is always rooted in the seichel and how the mind works and how the mind makes sense of things. It's not rooted anywhere else. So if you fix what's going on in the mind, you will fix the sadness. Okay. Where does the sadness come from? He doesn't... What? Sadness comes from the mind. Sadness comes from the mind. Okay. Now... This is again, the author doesn't say this explicitly, but from everything he says, it, that's clear what he's operating on. So, to understand this, I want to discuss a little bit about a distinction that exists in modern psychology, which I think will help make this clear. In modern psychology, they differentiate um, between emotions, strictly speaking, um, and moods. Okay. What is an emotion, and why do they exist? So, motion, emotions, so let's say, um, something dangerous is about to occur. What emotion should you feel? Fear. fear, right? And the idea being is that the fear, right, helps A, make you aware that it's dangerous and also helps you deal with the danger, right? Now that is only true if A, there really is something dangerous and B, the fear is proportional to the danger, right? Okay? And then you can work off from there other types of emotions, okay? So, that means an emotion is a response to something happening. And that something happening has to be um, understood by the, by the mind. In other words, the mind has to understand what is happening before you feel an emotion. For instance, if you do not understand that this thing is dangerous, you will not feel fear. Conversely, if you understand something is dangerous when it isn't, you will feel fear when it's unwarranted. Make sense? I do not mean that people are consciously taking academic courses and understanding reality around them. That's not what this means. Um, but it means that your emotions as such are directly linked to your understanding of what's going on. Now, there are things which feel like emotions but are not emotions, such as moods. Um, for instance, um, 
many people feel more down when it's winter. Right? Is that because their mind is telling them that things are, are, are bad and there's a little big loss? No, that has to do with the physiology of how the body works. And there are other types of things that can make a person feel things. Okay? So for instance, um, I'll give you an example. There's something called um, depression and there's something called sadness. This is a, um, a simple rule of thumb to test. Like, it's not like professional diagnosis, but this I did hear from a professional psychologist is like an at-home test. How do you know if you are sad or depressed? Sadness you're feeling? Simpler than that. There is reason for sadness. That's right. What are you sad about? And if it's one specific thing, and it centers around that one specific thing, chances are, again, it's not a professional diagnosis, chances are you are feeling sad. If it is not about one specific thing, now we're running into other, now we're running into something else. Well, now you're having something, what you're feeling down, the question is, well, why? So, what? It's not about something specific. Now, well, the reason why I'm saying this is because everything the Altarab is going to prescribe for dealing with sadness is going to be about reframing things and understanding them differently. What does that assume? It's an emotion. It's an emotion, not a mood, right? There are things, for instance, like I can tell you, very, very simply, if a person does not get enough sleep, they don't get enough food, they don't have enough friends, they don't have a proper schedule, um, these are, they are going to feel down, they will not be besimcha, and like, that just has nothing to do with what the Altarba says here. The Altarba is going to be dealing with where a regular person who's normal and healthy and functioning would normally feel sad. In the context of normal life, there's really nothing wrong with that. But in the context of serving Hashem constantly, there's a problem because you need to have that simcha all the time. So the question is, how do we remove the sadness to bring back the simcha, to bring back the joy? Okay. Um, which then leads to another important thing. Many times we are sad because we have putting improper emphasis or importance on something. It's just... It's really just not that big of a deal. And the Altarba doesn't even talk about those things because the Altarba um, generally writes the Tanya assuming a certain basic level of maturity. So if you feel sad because you dropped your ice cream cone, what would the solution to this be? Pick it up, throw it out. What? Realize that it's an ice cream cone and it's really like not worth being sad about. The Altarba doesn't even talk about things like that. We're not talking about children. Talking about mature, self-regulating adults. The entire time is addressing that level of psychological function. Yes? Um, this concept that you said about emotions versus moods and the difference, is that something that you understand from how Chassidus talks about people, or is that something that you've seen in other cases? Both. Chassidus, whenever it talks about midas proper, it So you're saying Chassidus only talks about emotions? No, Chassidus mostly talks about emotions. Because Chassidus mostly talks about the things that are dealing with our, things we have volitional control over in serving Hashem. Chassidus is not a, doesn't talk about the entire range of human psychological experience, because it's not interested in the whole range of human psychological experience. It's interested in that, in certain very specific parts of it. So Chassidus, often as an analogy, will talk about how people have different temperaments. But it's usually just as an analogy for something. It's really not like how to then deal with it. It's just like we deal with it. I'm like, okay, fine. It's a fact, interesting fact. 
Um, but in, in getting back to Tanya, he, he's speaking about sadness very much as the thing we feel in response to senses of loss. That's what sadness is. Sadness is the thing we feel in response to loss. Daiga concern is also in response to loss. In other words, when we have loss, we feel sad. When we're concerned about upcoming loss, we feel concerned, right? If you don't feel like you're losing out in any way, you don't feel sad. There's, it's a, from a general understanding, there's, there's very few places in Chassis that talks about moods. It talks about temperaments more than moods. Yeah, because temperaments tend to be vary from person to person, where moods tend to vary over time. In other words, some people feel down, but they've been feeling down for the past you know, year, but then they feel better, right? That's more like a mood, right? Or like the whole... And then there's people, but that's not even in response to anything in particular. Um, the ultimate does mention it in Tanya, actually, at one point. He does talk about a person just being in a, in a down mood. Um, um, but it sounds like there is not talking about a persistent mood. But like, but, but. Yes? But alacrity is not an emotion. More mm. disposition? It's a. This gets very, very technical terms of how you put it. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a property of simcha. Right. In other words, and now is simcha an emotion is also an interesting question. Where sadness is for sure an emotion. It's, whether simcha is an emotion is, is not necessarily, it, it seems to be that chassidus thinks that a certain basic level of simcha is like a natural state. That's a baseline. That's why children don't need reasons to be a simcha. And you only actually start losing that as you start becoming more concerned about all the stuff that goes wrong in life. So there are things you can definitely do to enhance simcha, but it does seem from says that it takes simcha as kind of like a core basic level of being. Okay. Um, so again, everything in Tanya is going to... The other thing is that the altar also takes for granted that we have the ability not that because the emotions are coming from the from our understanding we also have the ability to um, suppress emotions okay now I want to talk very briefly about suppression there's like generally people say people are suppressed and, and that's like a general thing people talk about but there is a an important technical difference between suppressing and repression it doesn't really matter what you call it, it's just important you know the difference. So let us say that you do something that makes me very angry. Okay? Now, do I have the ability as a functioning adult to suppress the anger and then go, not just do the other things that I'm supposed to do, but emotionally relate to them in appropriate ways? For you do something that makes me really angry and now I'm gonna go spend time with my son going bowling. Do I have the ability to suppress the anger and enjoy bowling? Okay, right? That is a healthy thing to be able to do. Now, there's a different idea, which is where things are repressed, which means that they're buried and not dealt with. They're not the same thing. Mm-hmm. Often people say suppression, what they're really referring to is the other thing, which is repressed. Okay? Now, that means if you know that you're having an emotion and the emotion is not appropriate for right now, right? 
We have the ability not just to act out in accordance with the emotion, but actually set that emotion aside for when it is appropriate. Again, think about how messed up our lives would be if we didn't have that ability. Okay. Can suppression lead to repression? Maybe. Maybe. Now, this is where you start entering on the, you know, you have a choice whether you want to one time you want to go into mental health, right? When this stuff doesn't work properly, then you start getting to mental health issues. The altruism is just going to take these things for granted and then talk about, okay, a person is sad. There are many reasons why you could be sad. How do we going to deal with them? Okay. Okay. The first type of sadness the altar mentions is sadness from worldly concerns, which he broadly categorized based on the um, wording of our sages into health, children, and livelihood. So this means someone is sad because some, they're having a health-related issue. Now, th- what's important is that these are serious issues and, and the, the, the idea of just get over it is not appropriate. So, for instance, a person finds out that they have um, a terminal disease, or for that matter, an incurable disease. It's not terminal, right? Um, or a person has an issue, they cannot find a shidduch, um, so family, you know, family, or they're infertile, right? Or their child is, is getting kicked out of school, whatever. These are not issues you tell the person, well, let's just get over it. It's just, you know, you know it's not what life's about. These are, these are real things, right? Or a person doesn't have enough money. Okay, now it's all, we all like to bash on money because we're all super spiritual beings, but the fact of the matter is, money is incredibly useful. You can solve a lot of problems with money. Not all of your problems, but a lot of your problems. Um, and if you don't have a certain amount of money, it takes a toll on your ability to deal with things. Such as like having where to live, having what to eat, right? Having the mental space to deal with the other issues that money can't solve. So what if a person doesn't have enough money? Okay, all these things are causes of sadness and concern. So now, what should you do? So the Al-Tarebbe's solution is based on the Gemara. The Gemara says that one should um, make a blessing on tragedies, the same one makes a blessing on fortuitous events. And it's, the Talmud's clear, it's not the same blessing. The blessing on fortuitous events is Shechianu. Whereas the blessing on tragedy is Dianamis, the true judge. But one should say it with the same um, degree of love, that they should accept suffering with love the same way we accept um, blessings with love. And the reason is because ultimately um, the things that we experience in this world as suffering are really good. And the author goes on to explain that the suffering is coming because it's a level of it's a level of Hashem's involvement in our lives that goes beyond our capacity to assimilate. Okay? The Alter Rebbe uses a Kabbalistic idea that there's a hidden level and a revealed level, a level that's more relatable of godliness and a level of godliness that's that's higher and deeper. And when Hashem connects us from the higher and deeper place, because we are not able to process it, we experience it as pain and suffering. Um, and ultimately, a person now has to kind of make a choice. What is more important to you? Your closeness with Hashem and his involvement in your life or the experiences that you have in this world? And the author of it based himself on the verse, which he reads as that your reaching out to me is better than life, meaning I value more my connection to Hashem and closeness with him than the experiences that I'm, that I'm going through. Um, and the idea is that when a person understands that 
the suffering that they're going through is not a negative thing. In fact, it's coming from closest to Hashem. They won't be sad. Now, there's an important caveat here. The altar does not say, in fact, he says the opposite. It doesn't mean the pain goes away. It means the sadness goes away. There's a difference. Okay? We use a very simple psychological observation. If a person goes through a tragedy, okay, and close family and friends, or for that matter, even strangers, reach out to them and are, and are really with them, does the person experience the pain of the tragedy? Yes, absolutely. Is the person lose their simcha, lose their positivity towards life? Often that's how they get it back, the sense of being connected, the sense of others being with them. The author was quite clear. The suffering and pain only go away in the Messianic era. He actually says it goes away because you're able to finally experience Hashem's closeness. So the idea is that when a person is able to appreciate that what is happening to them is not Hashem abandoning or rejecting them, but in fact it's Hashem reaching out to be closer to them, and they value that closeness, and they allow that closeness to touch them in a real way, the sadness, the atzvos, goes away, and the simcha is regained, that doesn't mean that the pain disappears. In fact, um, interestingly, um, the pain you may have experienced more acutely, you'll just be able, better be able to deal with it. Okay. Um, so that's the solution there. It is not an easy thing to do by any stretch of the imagination. Right? Uh, so to summarize, the Alter Rebbe thinks that a person sad because they feel that what has happened is bad and reflects an abandonment or rejection on Hashem's part and actually what is happening is ultimately good and is coming from Hashem being close to you. That doesn't make it less painful. It just reclaims the, 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 the simcha. Okay. Um, there are other places in, in Tanya with Alter because other addresses other issues about painful circumstances that are on a kind of a deeper, loftier level, but this is what he says here. Then he moves on to, what if you feel sad not because of what has happened to you, right, these kind of worldly concerns, but they are spiritual concerns, they're religious concerns. And here it becomes a little more complicated because you can't use the argument that really it's good. Right? Um, religious failings, spiritual failings are not good, they're bad. And so the altar of it says like this, if a person is sad or concerned because of the sins that they have committed, those things that they have done wrong, then the altar of his um, view is that you really should feel bad about those things. Those are things you should feel sad about. If you have sinned, you should feel sad. However, the sadness needs to be at the right time. And if the sadness is not at the right time, then it's counterproductive. So remember what I said about the ability to repress an emotion? Okay. So let us say one is about to engage in an act of service of Hashem, a direct act of service of Hashem, such as studying Torah, davening, things like that. Those things, very clearly, they need to be done in a state of joy. The verse says, Eve does Hashem simcha, serve Hashem with joy. So, if I'm supposed to do an activity in a state of joy, and I'm feeling something which contradicts that joy, clearly that's not the right time to have that emotional experience. Okay? Very, very simple. Let's say, um, let's say, God forbid, someone loses a loved one. Um, on Shabbos. Are they supposed to feel sad? Why? Shabbos. Shabbos not a little more, right? Okay. Well, 
it says that all of the kinds of mitzvah, Torah mitzvah things we do have to be done in a state of joy. So feeling sad, feeling concerned, feeling distraught because I have sinned, even if that is a legitimate feeling to feel relative to sin, it's, not, it's clearly inappropriate. Okay? It's not that, this, not that the feeling itself is illegitimate, but the timing is inappropriate. So the altruist is very simple, like you just have to have the emotional maturity to figure out a way to like repress that emotion till an appropriate time because it's not appropriate for right now. Um, the, the, the other thing is, well, what if I'm not involved in something which is specifically um, God-oriented, right? I'm just doing regular, everyday things. Well, then the Alter Rebbe says that the feeling is probably not legitimate at that point. And the reason is because if you've sinned, why should you feel bad about it? Because the sinning was wrong, right? So then the question is, well, what's wrong about sinning? What's bad about sinning? And what's bad about sinning is that it goes against God. That presupposes you have a value for God. Well, the question is, where did this value for God just all of a sudden show up in your psyche? You were just busy, like, grocery shopping. You're busy, like, I don't know, just taking care of everyday things. Where does all of a sudden this deep value for God's significance come from that makes you realize that your sins are, are wrong? If you were involved in a religious activity, your mind was focused on God. We understand thinking about God makes you recognize that your sins are truly bad and you feel bad about them. But if you weren't really directing your mind towards God, then why would you feel bad about sinning? Feeling bad about something means it goes against something you value. You go value it because your mind is aware of it, your mind is connected to it. In the case of Hashem, because Hashem is so outside of our everyday experiences, we're taking care of our mundane affairs, there's no way to legitimately feel bad about sinning out of the blue. And so the Alter Rebbe concludes, well, if you're not feeling bad because, this, because you recognize how bad the sin really is, then that feeling bad is actually coming from the evil inclination as a way to get a person to be spiritually weaker. So it's like this. It makes perfect sense if you sit down to daven, you sit down to study Torah, and you're thinking about Hashem, that, that you feel bad realizing that you've sinned against Hashem. And then the thing is just to have the maturity to realize, like, it's true, I, I should feel bad about these things, but not now, because it's going to interfere with these religious activities which should be done with joy. And if I wasn't paying attention to Hashem, well, then there's no reason I would feel sad in a legitimate way to begin with because my mind wasn't focused on Hashem and his significance. And so there was not, therefore there's nothing for me to think that the sin is wrong, to really feel that the sin is wrong. And so the altar says the only way for, for feeling bad because of one's sins could be both legitimate and appropriate is if you set aside time, is if you set aside time whose sole purpose is to reflect upon God's greatness so that you appreciate that your sins were wrong, so that you feel bad, so that you change your ways. But absent that specific context, it is either illegitimate or inappropriate to feel bad for your sins. Illegitimate in the case of if it was just never just came to you unexpectedly, and inappropriate if it's in the context of doing some other kind of mitzvah or Torah observance. Um, and then, you know, if you want to know how to do that better, there's a whole section, Tanya, called Geras Tshuva, How to Do Tshuva. Okay? The analogy I like to use for this is that um, you, don't do, you, don't, you don't do a surgery um, unless you have the right environment. Right? You, wouldn't, you want a sterile environment, a surgeon who knows what they're doing, right? Just simply cutting people open, as you're hoping for the best, is not a good approach. Okay? And that ends chapter 26. Chapter 27, the Alter Rebbe moves to, well, what if you feel bad, not because you have sinned, but because you have sinful tendencies 
that plague you. Okay? Um, there are two sinful tendencies that plague, that generally speaking plague everybody who is not a tzaddik. Um, and they are something that you never will get past. Okay? And these are thoughts of heresy, thoughts that undermine the legitimacy of Torah and mitzvahs, um, or idolatry and things like that. And the other are sexually inappropriate thoughts. In other words, there are many negative tendencies that people have. Jealousy, anger, etc. If you suffer from one of these tendencies, what should you do? You should work on it. And if you keep working on it, what will eventually happen? You won't have, you won't have these problems anymore. Now, is that easy? No. But a problem with a definable solution is nothing to feel sad about, right? In other words, if a person recognizes that they don't have enough money, right, the solution to that is to go get... This, if you realize that you have a negative tendency, the solution to that is work on it, right? But what if you have a tendency that is negative and you can't get rid of it? Now that's a reason for feeling bad, especially if you care about your religious life, you care about closest to Hashem. The fact that you have these tendencies and they are something that persists regardless of your effort is something that can make a person feel very down. The Alter Rebbe says, the Alter Rebbe says, um, the exact language is Hirhurim. Um, The exact wording is Hirhurim Raim, which is thoughts of heresy, Vataivas Rais, and negative desires. So, negative thoughts and negative desires. And the reason we know that is because later on he connects it to a verse um, which is referring to sexually inappropriate thoughts and heretical thoughts. And because he connects that to that, that's how we know it's referring to. Um, yes. In other words, people, who's not a, people who are not tzaddikim should expect that in the inner recesses of the mind, they do experience that little voice that tells them maybe this is all fake, maybe I should go do something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, 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 that voice doesn't mm-hmm. disappear. It doesn't necessarily show up all the time, but it, it doesn't necessarily disappear. Okay. Um, and the altar says, well, so the altar is saying, well, here, and then here we're, not, we're talking about the fact that these thoughts and desires occur. So Alter says, well, on the contrary, you're actually performing a mitzvah. There is a mitzvah in the Torah, do not turn astray after your eyes and after your heart. Eyes refers to sexually inappropriate thoughts and heart refers to idolatrous or heretical thoughts. Um, and you're doing this mitzvah because, when, because the only way you can do this mitzvah of not turning astray is if you have these thoughts and temptations to begin with. And the proof of that is the verse continues that says, that you were led astray by them. And that can't refer to a tzaddik. Remember, a tzaddik is someone who's devoid of an evil inclination. So this is referring to someone who is tempted by these things and yet does not succumb to the temptation. Well, if you're doing a mitzvah, whether you're performing a positive mitzvah or a negative mitzvah, one should rejoice in the performance of a mitzvah, right? So are not having these heretical thoughts or sexually inappropriate thoughts, are they not just simply the opportunity to do a mitzvah, which should bring one joy? So there you go. There's no reason to feel sad. But you'd feel sad, the altar says. You know why you feel sad? 
because you don't know your place. Now, I'm gonna give you the true version of this, not the polite version of this, okay? okay. The true version of this is that many times sadness comes because we fail to recognize our actual, who we actually are, our adulterous our place, and therefore we have expectations of ourselves that are completely divorced from reality. I'm gonna to explain to this not in the context of time, okay? Can we take for granted that not everybody is equal in all respects, right, they're just a like given, okay? So, let us say a person suffers from a very serious debilitating disease that makes walking extremely difficult, okay? And they are sitting there in their bed, miserable because they are not a marathon winner. They've not won a marathon. I think most of us look and say, well, there's something, something off about that. Why is there something off about that? It's beyond their ability. Let's go a little bit deeper. Their suffering disease makes it difficult to walk. If you can't walk, you can't run. A little bit deeper. If they suffer from a disease that makes it difficult to walk, then what should they be focusing on? And the focusing on walking, on making sure that they can walk and maintain their ability to walk, it, right, is a full-time job. Is there space left to engage in this fantasy land of... Right? In other words, when one realizes your space, it's not just this is beyond your ability. That's, that's, it's that there are things that are actually hard for you that require your attention. In other words, wishing, you know, wishing that you could succeed in the things that you need to succeed in are hard for you, that's a perfectly legitimate thing. I mean, then you have to actually go and live up to that and do it, right? But ignoring that and the wishing you could succeed in the things that have nothing to do with where you're holding and ignoring the things which you actually do have to deal with, right? that's like living in a fantasy. Like that's just desiring to be someone you're not. Right? There's something entirely disingenuous about that. Zalatra says like this, yeah. Let's say you're a Bainani. Right, remember we learned about a Bainani? Once you're a Bainani, it's like a given foregone conclusion that from now on you'll, you're gonna be a Bainani the rest of your life? Or is that, required, is that like a full-time job to make sure that you never become a Rashi even for one moment? And if you took that seriously, you recognized who you were and with the demands that you have on yourself seriously, would there be any place left for you to worry about the fan? Well, why am I not a Tzaddik? Why don't I have to? It wouldn't happen. The reason is because you have a combination of self-delusion and arrogance. And if a person is able to call a spade a spade and recognize that's all it is, it's self-delusion and arrogance, then the negative feelings of having to deal with something that someone else doesn't have to deal with go away. And I would refer to anybody in life who has to deal with something that other people don't have to deal with. The minute they recognize, well, this is my actual life and this is the thing I actually have to deal with, and they embrace that, they turn out to be relatively happy. And the minute they spend their time like ignoring that and you know living in some kind of fantasy land and then having this kind of sense of, well, aren't I entitled to live a different life than the one I actually have, right? Then they're just miserable. Basically, Alter Bess says. Alter doesn't say that you're better than anybody else. He doesn't say, he just says, look, you have your life and your life has its own difficulties. And, there, and you know, if you wouldn't be engaged in self-delusion and arrogance, the fact that you have these temptations wouldn't bother you you would see them for what they are, which is the opportunity to do a mitzvah. And yes, it's an indication that you're not a tzaddik. It's an indication you're on a lower spiritual level. All right. So what? 
there, in other words, you need a level of humility, um, a little of, of, of self-honesty in order for this to work. Okay. But then there is a, a, another issue, which is one thing that, that causes people to feel um, sadness is when they feel like what they're doing is pointless. And so Alterba kind of shifts and says, okay, well, it's fine that I'm doing a mitzvah, but if this is going to persist forever, then isn't, isn't it pointless? And so if I'm working on something, it should get better. If it doesn't get better, then it sounds like, like I'm accomplishing nothing, right? So it goes from having the challenge to like the pointlessness of the whole thing. And that the altar explains on the contrary. Every time that you push away um, the temptation to evil, you actually do accomplish something tremendous. You bring a level of godliness into the world, which is profound. And in fact... There are two ways to bring godliness into the world. One is by being a tzaddik and transforming evil into good, and the other is by overcoming evil when it's full strength. And he used the comparison of food that just like sweet food and savory food are not exchangeable. Each one has their own place. In fact, the sharp savory foods can actually revive and refresh a person in a way that sweet food can't. So the, the fact that we... Um, push away the temptation to evil, it actually is accomplishing something very profound in bringing godliness into the world. Granted, we don't become a more refined person in the process, but we are accomplishing something and therefore that, that should be valued. Okay? And in fact, that's why God himself creates the wicked. Remember we had that one of our questions? He actively brings to a person a, a sense of desire and temptation towards evil so that they can do this. Um, and Hashem is doing it for his sake and we should recognize that we're accomplishing something valuable even if we are not the benefit, spiritual beneficiaries of it. And then he extends this further that there's no action, doesn't even have to be something forbidden. Anytime we overcome our animal soul, even in matters which are completely permitted, if our purpose in doing so is to subjugate the klipa as a sacrifice to God, that also brings a tremendous lofty godliness into the world. And this is why there's a spiritual practice known as the skafia of subjugating one's desires simply because they're the desires of the animal soul. An important point here is that the motivation matters. Um, so he gives the example of the sages who would delay their breakfast by two hours. Um, not that they would do any more studying, they just switched around. And the point is that by making the animal soul uncomfortable, um, you're offering it as a sacrifice to God. Um, and the idea is that if you do that, the holiness you bring into the world ultimately slowly refines different aspects of the animal soul, even though ultimately the animal soul itself never remain, never, never really is um, elevated, because we spoke about the bane, the bane, the person is, the animal soul always remains in full force, but its area of expression becomes more refined and more narrow. Right? So you end up with this thing that, that the temptation towards forbidden thoughts and things like this is actually itself a positive thing that enables you to do a kind of special kind of service of Hashem, which is valuable. And as long as you're humble enough to recognize your place, you'll able to appreciate that. And moreover, that same idea can be extended beyond the area of temptation towards evil to any, any kind of natural or animalistic thing. Um, if we abstain from it for the right reasons, also brings a tremendous amount of godliness into the world. Okay. And then he says, this is although assuming, this is now we're moving to chapter 28, that we're talking about these inappropriate thoughts just in general. In the context, though, of prayer, of davening, this chapter 28, or of studying Torah, then we just have to go back to this basic thing. It's, you know, just ignore the thoughts. In other words, if I'm having inappropriate thoughts, 
during davening or during learning, any engagement with the thoughts at all, even to think about how I'm doing a mitzvah by pushing them away, is counterproductive. And the reason is because where's my mind supposed to be? Engaged with the prayers or the, or the Torah that I'm studying. And the fact that the, the inappropriate thoughts have become the subject of my mind's focus, even though I'm thinking about it in the right way, it maybe is a legitimate way of thinking about it, but it's inappropriate at the time. Right. Um, and then he goes on to discuss that there's a spiritual practice called elevating um, negative thoughts, and you shouldn't do this. Um, the basic idea is that people who are tzaddikim sometimes become aware of someone else's inappropriate thoughts in order to elevate them. Um, I could go into how this is done, but the author's point is it only works if it's someone else's negative thoughts, not your own. You can't elevate your own negative thoughts because they reflect your own base desires. Um, and he says, and if you really can't focus on your prayers, um, then you should humble yourself in your mind before Hashem and ask for help. And he says, in your mind. In other words, but the idea here is that inappropriate thoughts, really you should just kind of realize they're happening and focus back on the prayers rather than like making them the subject matter of your focus because in that, you're losing the battle. Whereas if you're suffering from these negative thoughts, not during prayer, back to chapter 27, you actually should think about how you're doing a mitzvah by overcoming them, by ignoring them. Um, now, there is an issue which is, but isn't the fact that I'm having these negative thoughts a sign that I'm not really genuine in my desire to pray? Or I'm not genuine in my desire to study Torah? And the answer to that is no, because you have two souls. And the nature of conflict is that when one person is succeeding in conflict, the other person becomes more defensive. So you should expect that as you invest deeper into davening and into, and into learning, the animal soul is going to try harder to obstruct that through having more inappropriate thoughts. Right? So the presence of inappropriate thoughts is not an indication that you're not succeeding. Um, so given all of that, you know, we've covered all the reasons why a person could be sad. Either their physical life is not going well, right? or they've sinned, or they're tempted by inappropriate things. Um, those are all the reasons why a person could feel like their, their life isn't the way it should be. And the only one that's a legitimate reason to be sad is having sinned. And even then, more often than not, it's inappropriate to be sad. And so, again, this only works as if you have the kind of, if you're gonna approach it with kind of the maturity to really absorb that way of thinking and regulate your emotions, right? It's not like a, it's not like a quick trick to feel good about yourself all the time. All right, now we're gonna to move to Tim Tum Halei, which is the heart being closed off. Heart being closed off is a slightly different problem. And the problem is basically like this. This is chapter 29. That even if you, that in order to engage in davening, to really connect to Hashem in davening, and to overcome your animal soul when it's not halakhically required, and to go above the letter of the law, one needs to really be in touch with their soul. The soul needs to be a vibrant part of their life experience. And if the heart is closed off, they can't do that. Now, the heart being closed off is a kind of sort of numbness to spirituality. It doesn't mean that a person is, doesn't, is not able to like, do Torah mitzvahs properly. So this is what I like to call more of an advanced problem. The problem of sadness is a basic problem. The problem of Tim Tumalei of the heart being closed off is an advanced problem. You can suffer from this problem and still do all the mitzvahs with all the right motivations, but it's dry. It 
doesn't have the vibrancy it ought to have. Um, and the altar says the solution to this is like the Zohar says. The Zohar says if there's a body that the soul is not able to illuminate, it's like wood that fire cannot catch. What happens if the fire doesn't catch the wood? How do you deal with that problem? You smash the wood into smaller pieces and it catches fire. Try setting a log on fire. Does it work? Take a match, put next to the log, won't get it right. You break it into smaller wood chips, it catches on fire. So if your body, meaning your person, is not receptive to the illumination of the soul, then what do we need to do to the person? Break the person. We have to smash the person. Because the thing that is closing off the heart is the person's own sense of their life, which we said is the animal soul, which we said is the klipa. And this is probably the most vicious and harsh part of Tanya is chapters 29 and 30, which is all about how to tear yourself down. Now, I will emphasize something. The solution to atzvos, to sadness, is to realize that things are not so bad, right? Or if they're bad, now is not the time to deal with it, right? The solution to Zimta Malev is to realize things are really bad. Which means you better figure out which problem you're suffering from before you attempt to solve it because the solution to one exacerbates the other. Just like in medicine, right? Sometimes something is wrong and you take a medicine, that same medicine given to a person who doesn't have that problem would actually cause them to be ill. Make sense? Okay. What are you trying to obtain that Tintum is? Tintum is when you're not receptive to the vibrancy, to the passion of the soul. And that comes because you're too human and you're too comfortable with yourself. And the only way to solve this problem is to destroy your sense of comfort with your own humanity. And that means that you have to, um, as the Zara says, mevachinle, break the person. Or is the, Z- way the, the way the Zohar describes it, Lev nishbaruach nishbara, that by breaking one's, by having a broken heart, the spirit of impurity is broken and the soul is free. So yes, this means developing a lot of negative feelings towards oneself. And so that means thinking of oneself in very negative terms. But not like the cause for sin. No, no, no. A person can suffer. If a person is suffering from Tim Tim it doesn't necessarily affect their behavior. Tim Tim has a problem that it, it, their Judaism is dry. So you could be, the author was very clear, is that a person can be a Bainani and have Tim Tim The heart being closed off is like a normal issue. They're doing all the mitzvahs, they have the right values, they're going through it, but it's dry. So when it comes to prayer, they're, don't, they're not really open, they're not really engaging Hashem fully in prayer. They're doing, saying the words. When it comes to going above and beyond, what halacha requires, and sacrificing animal souls we discussed in chapter 27, that's something you're gonna find very difficult to do. But they're still, they're, 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 they're not sinning. Right? Tim Tumalev does not have anything to do with behavioral regulation, it has to do with the inner quality of things. It makes everything feel cold and dry and technical. And I wanna emphasize, if you're suffering from, if you have difficulties with sadness, then you should be very careful about trying to solve Tintum Alev problems because can that's right. Exacerbate makes it much worse. Okay. Is so, this a Bainini problem? Is a Bainini problem. You could also not be a Bainini and have this problem. Is it common? It's common, but it's like mild amounts of sleep deprivation are common. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't assume that's the first thing you need to solve in life. Mm-hmm. Right? What? Solve 
six hours is still mild sleep deprivation. Right. Okay. Um, so how do you do this? So chapter, 27, 20, uh, 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 chapter 29 goes as follows. So step number one okay, is the person should reflect upon how really there's really... Um, even though that they're doing everything right, they're, they're as far away from God as could possibly be because they really haven't changed their animal soul, right? Their animal soul is not subjugated. Their godly soul has certainly not been transformed, which means if they were to just relax their hard work to focus on their relationship with God, what would happen? They would be a wicked person. They would sin. They would sin, commit the worst sins in the world, right? Which means deep down, it's all an act. Deep down, it's all fake. Notice this is the opposite of chapter 13. The altar is full of contradictions because it's a guidebook to life, right? When you're feeling that what you're doing is illegitimate, you need to see, figure out how it's really legitimate. When you feel so, so complacent and, and, and self-assured that you're closed off to your soul, you have to think about it in different terms. That on some level, everything about a non-sadi is fake, is false, is a charade. That's number one. Number two. The fact that you can't open yourself up to your soul is a sign that your tshuva for the sins that you've previously done is no longer accepted. Because it's sin that separates you from Hashem. And even though you did tshuva in the past, but, you're no longer, but now the tshuva in the past is no longer valid for whatever reason. It goes into the technicalities where I could go into that. So the sins that you did in the past are currently separating as if you've done them just now. Moreover, even if you haven't sinned, think about all the stuff that you've done that's not really been for Hashem's sake. Right? All the stuff that really, well, technically allowed is not really about furthering your connection to Hashem and ultimately how that therefore goes against Hashem in some subtle sense. And on top of that, when you dream, if your soul is really free of evil, when you dream, your dreams should be filled of Think secrets of the Torah and rejuvenating your awareness of God. If, on the other hand, you dream of mundane things, and especially if you dream of false things, notice mundane isn't the same as false, then that shows that your soul on a deep, deep level is, is um, invested in the klipa and the impurity, and you're just a bad person deep down inside. Yeah. It says, also, you should actively berate the animal's soul in your mind by calling it all sorts of names, like wicked, evil, disgusting, despicable, etc. But really mean it. Um, because when, just like a spoiled child, when you, when, you, when you call them out on it, they don't really, like someone who's really, really spoiled and you don't like play along with it and they just have a meltdown. The animal soul is the same thing. All the clip kind of has a meltdown when you just like, Show them, like, you're, you're nothing, you're a nobody. And that actually opens you up to the soul. A similar thing is also when a person is experiencing doubts in their faith. The doubts are not coming from a lack of faith. The doubts are coming from the animal soul. So if you just, you know, berate the party that's doubting as a, as a faker and a liar because it's coming from the animal soul, the animal soul knows that God is real, then it kind of melts away and, and, the, and the faith comes back. And you see that reflected when Moshe rebuked the people for doubting God. They all of a sudden started believing. He didn't, like, prove to them God is capable. He just says, you're a bunch of lowlifes for doubting God. And all of a sudden when they felt bad about the doubt, it stopped covering over the inner faith. So that's chapter 29. Chapter 30 makes it worse. Chapter 30 was not in the original edition of Tanya. It was added. All these sections that involve other people, the Altarebbe added in the second edition, which is the first published edition. 
chapter 30 says, well, you should also fulfill the statement of our sages that you should be of low spirit in front of all people. And he says, like, you should actually be that way. In other words, you should feel that every single person, every single person is better than you. That when you look at them, you feel ashamed of yourself. What about when you see one of the worst sinners around, right? How could you feel ashamed of the worst sinner? He says, well, okay. The worst sinner, why are they sinning? Because they have a very strong desire to sin, right? And a lot of opportunity to sin, right? Basically, um, the intensity of propensity to sin is correlated to how strong is the desire to sin and how easy it is for you to sin, right? So a person who has a lot of opportunity to sin and they have a strong desire to sin, they're going to be sinning a lot and very heinous sins, right? Okay. Are they allowed to sin? No. How hard would it be for them to have the requisite fear of God to stop them from sinning? Very, right? Okay. So that's what Hashem expects from them. Does Hashem expect things that you can't do? Okay, so that person, Hashem expects them to have fear of, enough fear of God that they wouldn't sin even though their animal soul is burning with a passion like a baker's oven. And even though they have the opportunity to sin and get away with it at every, op- at every moment of the day. He, Hashem still expects them to work hard enough to have at least enough sense that Hashem is real and watching them that they stop sinning. Okay. Do you put anywhere near that amount of effort in your service of Hashem? Think about what Hashem expects from that person and then think about what you're doing. So the altar says, that's very nice. You always make a bracha before you eat. Do you put that amount of effort in your brachas, making sure that you're really paying attention to the meaning of what you're saying? How does it feel to realize that you are doing far less than was expected of someone else? Well, just think about that in life, right? There's an expectation that's being expected of other people, and you're doing far less than what's expected of the minimal expectation of someone else. Does that make you feel good about yourself? No. It says, look, all of the areas where you could put more effort into Torah mitzvahs don't ever come close to the minimal effort that Hashem is expecting of this other person. Not that this other person has a legitimate excuse, but that just sets the standard of what should be the minimal expectation. And he says, then, let's be honest, even if you're a Benini, there's all sorts of areas where you're doing things that are wrong, that it's not just that you're not, it's not just that you're doing things, it's not just that you're, you're, you could be doing better, you could be improving with more effort into your Torah mitzvahs. You're actually doing things that are wrong. They're just very subtly wrong. For instance, it gives an example. Um, you know you're not allowed to speak Lashon Hara? Okay. So if I were to ask you who left this room a mess, and you were to tell me it wasn't me, it was so-and-so, technically speaking, are you speaking Lashon Hara? Yeah. Technically, 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 technically. You're just trying to tell me that you didn't do it with someone else, so go take it up with them, right? But if we were to go, if we were to really set the standard of Lashon Hara more exacting, in some sense you really are, right? Because you could have just said, it wasn't me, right? You don't have to say who it was. Right? It's this innocent slip of the tongue that's really not so innocent, right? So what happens if you start holding yourself to more exacting standard of halacha? Like really exacting standard. Even the baini doesn't come out squeaky clean, right? Because like, you know, it's hard. On top of that, by the way, there's a general rule that Hashem considers intentional sins 
of those who are ignorant and spiritually insensitive as unintentional sins. Because after all, if you're not so scholarly and you don't care so much for your relationship with Hashem, how much can you really expect of that person? But if you're a person who's taking your relationship with Hashem very seriously and you're working very hard on it, then Hashem considers even your unintentional sins as if they're intentional transgressions. So it turns out, who's the worst person on the planet? The person who takes their service of Hashem seriously and is a bainini and is working really hard, but guess what? They got comfortable putting in less effort than is expected of the worst sinners. They tolerate minor transgressions as if they're no big deal. Right, those are very subtle. And on top of that, right, there's a level of hypocrisy about the whole thing that they're a person who's taking the relationship with Hashem, so to speak, seriously. So, now how do you feel about yourself if you were to really dwell on all that stuff? Pretty. Yeah, okay. And, and people think it is all about the lovey-dovey feel-good stuff. And um, yeah, so the altar starts chapter 31 saying, even if you spend a lot of time thinking about this and you feel really sad, it's not a problem. It's not a problem to feel sad about these things. Why? Two things. One, feeling sad about spiritual failings is the positive side of Klippa Snogu. Remember we spoke about how there's Klippa, which is redeemable? When you feel sad about your spiritual failings in such a manner that it prompts growth, that's the positive side of that klipa. Number two, the only way to really free yourself of, your, of, of, of the klipa that's keeping your soul constricted is to use klipa. There's a principle that the only way to defeat klipa is with klipa. There's two analogies for this. If you want to chop down a tree, you need an ax. What do you use as the handle of the ax? The tree. So the tree has to defeat the tree. Okay? Or if you want to kill a vicious creature, what kind of person will go out onto the street and kill a vicious creature? Say there was a snake terrorizing the town, right? Who's going to go out of their house and kill the snake? A vicious person. You need a vicious person to kill a vicious creature. Right? If you want to defeat the klipa within you to open yourself with your soul, you're going to need to use klipa. A simple way of explaining this idea is like this. Let's say a person is very arrogant because they're really good at something. How do you humble them? At what? Of that thing, right? If you do better than something else, they say, well, fine, I still value that thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you need the animals, the animal soul, the, the, the cleave the animal soul is all wrapped up in me and how important I am and how good I am and how successful I am, my own personal achievements and well-being, right? So, the per- so you, that's the part of you that needs to feel broken. So it's not enough to, to focus on godliness. You actually have to focus on how much of a failure you are as a human being in the context of your religious life. That's what chapters 39 and, and 30, 29 and 30 are about. And then you're going to feel sad, but that's going to break the hold of the klipa and allow your soul to shine. Okay, should you do this if you are suffering from tendencies towards sadness um, in your service of Hashem? No. No. You could see why? Okay. Um, Now, the altar then goes on to say, actually, the feeling that you have after this is not really sadness. Sadness will be just for a moment, but ultimately, that's going to change into a different feeling he calls mirirus or bitterness. What is the difference between atzvo sadness versus mirirus bitterness? Mariris is like simcha in the sense that it is energetic. 
Think about it. When you feel like you've lost, you've lost out, do you feel like you want to do stuff? Okay. If you feel like an injustice is being done, do you feel like you want to take fight? That's the difference. So he says, so it says, yeah, you're going to feel sad, right? And that's going to break, and that's going to break the hold. But then that's going to change into a different feeling, which is actually a holy feeling, which is this feeling of mariris, this sense of indignation, the sense of bitterness, the sense of this is untenable. This, this being so distant from Hashem is something that cannot be allowed to continue. And now do you feel good and feel joy? No. So the altar says, okay, now that you feel this bitterness, what should you do? You should realize who's far away from God. You, the person, right? But that's just the person. Inside you, you have a godly soul, right? I'll let you finish it. And therefore... What? No. And therefore, it's even worse of a tragedy. It's not, not only is it... Not only are you the created human being as far away from possible as is existentially could, far away from Shem as is existentially possible, you've dragged the godly soul with you. Thirty-one. You've dragged the godly soul with you, right? You dragged the godly soul with you, and that's like a real tragedy. But but here's the thing: you can rescue the godly soul. By throwing yourself into Torah and mitzvahs in general and prayer and spe- specifically. And so you know what? If you realize that someone else is suffering from tragic circumstances and you could solve their problem, wouldn't it bring you great joy to know you could solve their problem? And even greater joy that you're solving their problem? And so you should decide to make that your life's mission, to redeem your godly soul from the imprisonment inside the corrupt being that you are. And that should bring you joy. I, it's true... Um, that you as a human being remained a despicable, decrepit creature. But you know what? Why should you let the sadness of the, of the failure associated with the body and the animal soul in any way corrupt the joy that comes from focusing on the godly soul? Think about it like this, yeah? If you are having a miserable day and you go to your best friend's wedding, how should you feel? What? But you're having a miserable day. Everything, what you, you lost your job and you couldn't find your shoes and I don't know what else. You know, all this stuff happened, right? But you know what? Don't you have the ability to kind of set aside the fact that like, like you're not the only being that matters and you care about others and focus on them and their joy? So I says, yeah, you, you're not, such a, you're not such hot stuff. That's true. But you know what? On the contrary, that makes it all the more important to release the godly soul from the imprisoned the, the prison that it finds itself within you, right? And therefore, you should take joy in focusing on what you can do in redeeming the godly soul, even though you are, in fact, quite um, embittered about the state of the animal soul and the human being. Right? So having a godly soul is not like, ooh, I feel close to God have a godly soul. It's just it, it makes it worse on the one hand, but it actually makes it better because it means there's something you can, there's something that, there is something you can actually solve. Okay. And so that's the key idea is that one should always prioritize the well-being of the godly soul over the animal soul in the body. Okay. And it's that theme that the Alter Rebbe then kind of takes this little detour, which we'll do tomorrow, into... Um, 
loving your fellow Jew. Okay, so where are we leaving off? How should you feel about yourself as a person? Not good. Not good. How should you feel about the fact that you can release the godly soul from the captivity? Empowered. Extremely empowered and positive, right? Okay. He also mentions the idea of making a dwelling place for Hashem parenthetically as another thing that you can feel positive about, but I, I'm not going to go into it right now simply because that's something he, he says he's going to address later chapter, in chapter 35. So he makes reference to it here, but we're going to talk about it in chapter 35. So we'll do about that. Um, I do want to emphasize that, that as you move through Tanya, the need to be emotionally mature becomes more and more evident. So, we're all a bunch of despicable creatures. Not heavy reading. <laughs>